we're back in Proverbs. If you'd open to Proverbs chapter 2, we're going to look at the whole chapter tonight. Proverbs chapter 2, and beginning in verse 1, Solomon writes, My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. And from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the paths of justice. He preserves the way of his saints. And then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity, and every good path. When wisdom enters your heart and knowledge is pleasant in your soul, discretion will preserve you. Understanding will keep you to deliver you from the way of the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perversity of the wicked, whose ways are crooked and who are devious in their paths, to deliver you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words, who forsakes the companions of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God, for her house leads down to death and her paths to the dead. None who go to her return, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you may walk in the ways of goodness or good men, keep to the paths of the righteous, for the upright will dwell in the land and the blameless will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the earth and the unfaithful will be uprooted from it. Let's pray. Father, I ask you, Lord, that you'll open our hearts and our minds and stamp on them, Lord, the importance of getting wisdom and hearing your truth and walking in it. And I thank you that you'll do that in Jesus' name. We've been talking about wisdom here now for the last few weeks on Wednesday nights. And, you know, the Bible clearly teaches that wisdom is invaluable. It's essential. It's vital to being a Christian because our eternal safety relies on it. And that's the title of tonight's message, the invaluable importance of wisdom for safety, because that's what chapter two that we just read is basically all about. Chapter one actually ended with the promises of safety and security. If you just look back at the end of chapter one, and it says right there in verse 33, wisdom is speaking with lady wisdom, but whoever, that's whoever, listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without the fear of evil. And everybody wants that, don't they? And chapter two is now going to tell us how we can obtain both safety and security. We're resuming here. We had a break there where Lady Wisdom was talking in chapter two. We'll resume these discussions that a father is having with his son. And you can just tell that the father loves the son and he's concerned about him, cares about him. And in just the first two words there where he says, my son, these aren't stern lectures, but they're loving admonitions, even though I would say he uses some pretty strong direct language. And we just saw that last week in chapter one. I mean, he said, this is pretty direct and pretty strong, I guess. When you say those that turn their ear and harden their neck against wisdom, God says, I mean, they're not easy words to receive. He says, I will laugh and mock when calamity and terror comes upon you. When you pray, 
I will not hear an answer. And when you seek me, you're not going to be able to find me. I mean, those are pretty hard words. And hearing words like that, would you rather be told the truth now and deal with it or have it, I'm talking about the Bible, just reading it. Reading it is hard enough, but just have it so watered down that you live a complacent life insecurity and thinking you're okay and ultimately you're destroyed because that's what he says will happen here in verse 32 at the end and the second part of that it says the complacency this quietness this thinking everything's okay the complacency of fools will do what to them it says there it'll destroy them and in contrast though to the fool the wise man or woman they will make the changes that are needed that's where it says in verse 23 back in chapter 1, I'm not going back through all that, but he says, if you'll turn, if you'll repent, if you'll turn at my rebuke, that's what a wise person will do. And he says, surely I'll pour out my spirit on you. I'll make my words known unto you. And he's also, like we just read at the end of that, the person that turns, that's wise, that will do what's being said, make whatever adjustments are needed, said you'll have safety, security, and a lack of fear. And that's everything, safety, security, and a lack of fear. That is what, now we don't have bombs dropping here, but I guarantee you that would be a, a word in season to somebody living in Syria or Israel. <laughs> I mean, they're getting threatened right now from what I understand with Iran. Iran's maybe planning an attack that they may have to do something about. I don't know. We'll see what happens on that. What he's saying here in chapter 2 and through all this book of Proverbs is the son is in the process of facing life on his own and the path he chooses is going to determine his eternal destiny. I mean, that's how critical it is. That's why this father, when he talks to this son, he's painting a clear picture. But he's painting a clear picture both ways. He's like, if you take this path here, here's where it's going to end up. You need to clearly see this. I'm going to tell it to you straight. But if you choose this path, the good path, here's where it will end up. And you need to clearly see that so he can make an informed decision. Wisdom is the key thing. In verse 2, the father, look at verse 2 in chapter 2, the father encourages the son to listen to wisdom so that you incline your ear to wisdom, he says there. In verse 6, the Lord promises to give wisdom. Look in verse 6. For the Lord, he gives wisdom and he stores up sound wisdom, it says in verse 7. For the upright. In verse 10, when you have that wisdom, when you receive it, it says it will preserve and keep and deliver. Look in verse 10. When wisdom enters your heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul, it'll preserve you, it will keep you, it will deliver you, we have in verses 11 and 12. Now, there's nothing negative about any of that, is there? I don't think so. Nothing negative about that. So we need to understand that wisdom in the Bible is just not talking about an accumulation of knowledge. It's not a matter of memorizing verses. I've known people from here it's been a few years, could recite literally a whole book of the Bible, and they are not living in wisdom now. That's not what it's talking about, just memorizing. But it's good to memorize verses, isn't it? It's good to memorize a lot of Proverbs. You get in a situation, and God can use that and bring it up, and like, here's how you need to deal with this. So there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying there's any wrong, but the wisdom here, it's not even just an intellectual understanding of what the Bible says. There's some people, a heathen could tell you, well, yeah, this is what that means, but they're not living it. So that's not what he's talking about here with wisdom, but it's the skill or the ability to practically apply the truths and principles of the Bible. That's what he's talking about with wisdom. Jesus said this, he said we were to be what? Wise as serpents. Now there are some serpents that are wise, and I'm talking about 
men that are serpents that are worldly wise. But he's saying we're to be wise as serpents. That's that word discretion. It means we're to be shrewd and cunning like a serpent. But in a good sense, in a good sense that we, when we have wisdom, we will be able to discern, to recognize, to avoid evil. And so we're supposed to be shrewd in that way. Because we need to have wisdom to deal with these evil days. And that's in the New Testament. And it's the sign of a spirit-filled life. If you would just put something there in Proverbs 2 and turn back to Ephesians 5 in the New Testament. Look at that real quick. And beginning in verse 15. Ephesians 5, 15. And Paul writes there, he says to the Ephesians, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, buying up the opportunities that are given you. Why? It says right there, because the days are evil. I would say that's the days we're living in. And he goes on to say, therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit. That's where wisdom comes from, isn't it? It's having that anointing, the Spirit of God on you. It's not just memorizing scriptures, but it's having that anointing on you, the Spirit of God that can lead and bring those scriptures up, bring things to your remembrance, and give you a supernatural wisdom and skill in how to deal with things that are here. Evidence of of the baptism is speaking in tongues, but it's also, I would say, walking in wisdom, isn't it? And love, and you could say a whole lot of other things. I mean, just because someone speaks in tongues and they're missing a whole lot of things, that tongues doesn't mean a thing, does it? Not necessarily. So I think everybody here that's here, hear with the sound of my voice, that's truly born again. If you're truly born again, you're going to have a desire, first of all, to know God more and to draw closer to him. Amen. I think that would be the first thing. And also, I think you're going to want to maintain that close walk with the Lord to live as Paul speaks in Philippians. He says this. He says that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Knowing God more, maintaining that close walk with him, not getting off that path. Proverbs 2 is going to tell us how to do both. If you go back to Proverbs 2, we're going to look at this chapter under two headings. And the first is going to be the great importance of seeking wisdom. And the second heading is going to be the great benefits of finding wisdom. So first of all, the great importance of seeking wisdom. And look in verses 1 and 2. He says, my son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Look at those words that are used there, those verbs that are used in those first two verses. Look at it. Receive, treasure, incline, apply. To me, those are words, and when you think about what's being said here, are words that paint a picture of someone that's receiving instruction from a teacher that has a reputation of being the best in the field, something that you really have a great desire and interest in. That's how you're going to receive instruction by these words here, where you're receiving them, treasuring them, inclining your ear, looking to apply them. In other words, that wisdom that's coming, you're not going to just take it for granted or let it fall to the ground, are you? Not if you have respect for the one that's teaching you that. To give an illustration, we just had the Kentucky Derby and Bob Baffert 
a horse trainer. He's trained the winner of five Kentucky Derbies. Most noticeably, the last one, Justify, I guess was the name. I didn't see the Kentucky Derby. I was busy getting a message together. If you watch it, I don't have a problem with that. All right, you're not getting a message together, but I was busy. I've watched him in the past. But he's also not only five Kentucky Derbies, he's won six Preakness States, two Belmont Stakes, and one Triple Crown, which that's quite an accomplishment, isn't it? He's at the top of his profession, isn't he? You would say he's a world-class trainer. I think you could pretty safely say that. If you are really into horses, we have some people here that really are into horses, and your greatest desire is to learn how to train a champion, you couldn't learn from a more knowledgeable horseman than Baffert. And I'm sure he's overflowing with horse wisdom or horse sense, however you want to say it. So let's say you're into that. That's really like your goal in life, what you really want to do. And by some twist of fate, or should I say some divine providence, you're able to sit under his tutelage. If that's too big a word, he's your teacher. You're his disciple. <laughs> and when that was the case, if you really knew who he was, what he had done, all the money he's won, and that you know nothing, if you do that and he invites you, I want you to come and sit under me, so to speak, you're going to have an awe and respect for him, aren't you? You are. I'll tell you you are. People are that way with movie stars. They've done nothing, really. You wouldn't let one word, if this is what you're into, you wouldn't let one word he spoke drop to the ground. And you'd have a heart to receive his words. You would treasure his commands. When you heard him say, have a horse do this, don't have him do this, man, you'd be treasuring that up, wanting to remember what he's telling you to do. You would incline your ear to everything he's saying. You'd even listen to the instructions he's given to the stable boy. Incline in your ear, and you would work hard at applying everything he said when he gave you opportunity. And why is that? Why would it be that way? It's because it's all a matter, isn't it, of desire and attitude of the heart. Your desire would be, I want to train champions, and I can't believe I've been given this opportunity to work with Bob Baffert. Now, I could care less, but I mean, a horse person would really think that was great. And the other thing is, if that opportunity came, you would make a full commitment to learn, wouldn't you? You'd be just consumed with your training. Because listen, making a full commitment to something, isn't that really how you learn anything? You don't really learn anything by being detached and just learning facts, do you? It's like, how do you learn to ride a bike? You cannot learn how to ride a bike by reading a how-to book. You have to be fully committed to riding, don't you? You have to be getting on the bike. You have to be taking risk. You gotta crash sometimes. And you're learning through that skilled reactions. But you're never gonna learn how to ride a bike till you get on that thing and you're committed to doing it, are you? I mean, that's the way it is. Listen, all of what I've just said, we can make spiritual application if you haven't already. God puts knowing Him, eternal life, and the fullness of Christ before us as our goal, that should be our goal, our desire, and our aspiration. And then, guess what he does? This is what he's doing in Proverbs. This is why we're studying this. He offers, he graciously offers to train us, like Bob Baffert. He's going to show us how we can achieve those goals. And first of all, I would say the first thing we do is we have to fully appreciate who it is that is given us this opportunity we have of hearing his word. 
to be trained by him. This is not like a man, a horse trainer, some frail, weak man that has to go to bathe daily. Let me put it that way. But we're talking about God Almighty. And when we realize that, that he is the one that's inviting us to partake of his wisdom, offering to train us personally, that should produce a fear of the Lord, shouldn't it? Our respect and all. I'm not talking about a shaking in your boots. I hope you don't do something to me. But just that all in respect that God Almighty is offering to teach me wisdom. Give me his wisdom. And he wants to work with me. Now you tell me you're a horse person or you're whatever field it is you want to like. And the best in that field comes. You would be like, you want to work with me? Well, listen, God is better than all of them. And that's what we should be looking at his word. You want to train me? You set me under this word? I'm not talking about me. Forget about me. I'm just saying the truth we've heard. I mean, what an honor. What a privilege. And we should have the attitude, I don't want to waste this opportunity. And when that's the case, guess what you'll do? And this is what Jesus calls us to as our Lord. He says, you've got to make full commitment. And that's the only way we're going to learn anything, isn't it? You want to learn about Christianity? A half-hearted commitment is not, you're not going to learn anything. You're not going to learn it right. And you're going to learn some things wrong and you won't have discernment. Because being committed, fully committed to learning the skills necessary to achieve our goal is the only way we're going to be there. And that's why he tells us, you've got to, Luke 14, you've got to forsake all if you want to be my disciple. Or it won't work. Because it's all designed on a full commitment, isn't it? And the finished goal that we're going to have, it's not a trophy that will perish. It's not fame that is fleeting or the pride that I've trained a million dollar horse. But it's what? What is he putting before us? The fellowship with the living God. Eternal life. Unending joy in the kingdom of God. And the glorious privilege. I just don't know that we really believe it, so it's not that big a deal to us. But the glorious privilege of being a son of God conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's what he says his goal is for us, isn't it? Man, if we really knew what that was and asked God to open our eyes to it, I think we'd be more committed and we wouldn't let words fall to the ground and we wouldn't let go of them so easy. Amen? That's what I think. That was one and two. You go on and it takes us to the next level here in verses three and four. And he says, yes, if you cry out for discernment, lift up your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures... That's kind of taking it up to the next level, isn't it? Cry out, lift up your voice, or the verbs used there, seek and search. That's desire at the next level because you only cry out for what? You only cry out for things that you're desperate about. You, know, you get in a situation, and we've all been there in one form or another, where you're like, I have got to have wisdom and an answer because I'm in a desperate situation. I need the Lord to show me what to do because I'm just not sure. Look, that's the king of wisdom. He found that out. So if you'll turn back to 1 Kings chapter 3. Solomon has just become king. And look what it says in verse 7. He says, Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David. But, he says, I am a little child. I don't know how to go out or come in. And... Your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, he says, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, 
that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? And it says there at the beginning of verse 10 that this speech, it didn't make God upset, did it? He didn't like, man, you ought to know by now what to do. No, it said it pleased the Lord that he asked for that. But you can just see the desperation that was there. He's like, first he's saying, look, I'm just a little child. I don't know the ways of the world yet. I don't know how to deal with all this stuff. I don't know how to go in and come out like my father did. David, he'd had a whole life experience by the time he died as king. And Solomon was like, I'm just getting started. I need help. He's desperate. And not only that, he's like, look at who you've given me to rule. I mean, Israel was at its peak. Your great people, not just any people either. He's saying, these are the ones that God has chosen. And you put me in charge of these people? <laughs> wow. I need wisdom to know how to deal with things in the right way. And the third thing, he's like, I also need to know how to discern your view of what is right and what is wrong. Have you ever had that? Where it's like, I can look at this situation, I can go one of two ways, easily. I need to have your wisdom, God, in what to do. And it's not, many times, not going to be the same as the world situation. So we get in situations that we need wisdom. Like I said, God's wisdom, not worldly wisdom. And it'll cause us to cry out in desperation. And that's what James 1 is talking about. We went through all that a while back. In James 1, he says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. I don't know how to deal with my loved one. It's a problem, what to say, what not to say. How should I act my faith? How should I respond to slander, either about me or being said to me about someone else? What if someone wants to borrow my brand new computer that I need for work? What should I do about that? I don't know. You say to lend to those that ask, but I need this computer and I can't have them breaking this. What do I do? Various trials, isn't it? And that's why it's put right there where it is in James 1. You get in these trials, you get in these situations, and you're not sure what to do, and we need wisdom on what to do. And James says that if we need wisdom in any trial to ask God, and what does he say? He'll give it. Now let me ask you, back to Proverbs 2. We ask, does that mean that we do nothing when we ask? That he's just going to drop it like a present, like the UPS man. It's going to be right on our front door and the UPS man is going to ring the bell and there's, you know, there's God's answer. Does it necessarily work like that? Because look what he's saying here in verse 4. If you seek her, this wisdom, you have to seek as silver and search. Seek and search for her as hidden treasures is what it says in verse 4. And it's telling us there, there are conditions there's a big if there, like there's a big if in verse three, if you cry out for discernment. In other words, if you don't, you won't get it. <laughs> I mean, you say, well, what happened to grace? <laughs> I thought salvation was all grace. It is. But what does he say in Philippians? He says you have to work out your salvation. He's given it to you. It's like D.L. Moody used to say, here's this big mountain, there's gold in there. It's grace that gave it to you, but the miner, he's got to work it out, doesn't he? If he wants to have it, it's there, but it's just not going to fall on his lap. There's a little work involved. And even the work is grace, isn't it? It's God that worketh in you to want to even work out your salvation. It is all of grace. But I'm saying it's all a matter of desire, isn't it? So 2013, a Florida 
treasure hunting family struck it rich. They discovered $300,000 worth of gold coins and chains off the coast of Fort Pierce. And the husband, Rick Schmidt, said this, this is like the end of a dream. Him and his wife, Lisa, their two children, Hillary and Eric, they uncovered this treasure 150 yards off the coast. So there's this guy that he actually owns the rights to anything that's found in this area they're looking. Owns the right to the wreckage. And he said this about this family. He said, what's really neat about them is they are a family. They spend family time together out there. And the most amazing part about them is they always believed this day would come. And so this family, as a family, had been diligently searching for treasure for years. Now, just to kind of, as a little aside, how much of that $300,000 do you think they got? Well, they had to give 20% to the state of Florida. This guy that had the rights, he got the other half. I think it basically left him with $120,000 to split amongst the four family members. I mean, that's not hardly going to put you in retirement, is it? It didn't say how much time they actually spent every week, every day, every year. But it just said for years, that's what they'd been doing. So what does God say, though? He says that we need to treat wisdom like this family treats silver and gold. That's what he says in verse 4. If you'll seek for her wisdom as silver. At that time, silver was probably more valuable than gold. And search for her as for what this family did. Hidden treasures is what he tells us. And he says that true treasure that's worth spending years seeking for is really verse 5. You'll understand. Here's the true treasure. You'll understand the fear of the Lord and you will find the knowledge of God. That's what you'll find. That's the treasure you'll find. That's what God's putting out in front of us. And it's also this treasure that comes out of his mouth. In verse 6, he says, for the Lord, he gives wisdom. And from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. And so what does it mean when it says it comes from his mouth? It's the spoken word of God. That's what he's talking about there, what you have in your lap. When Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, what did he quote to the devil? He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from where? From the mouth of God. That's Deuteronomy 8, I believe. We have another Bible character. Do you know Timothy spent family time seeking treasure? You know, the one Paul wrote to Timothy. Spent family time seeking treasure with his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. Now, you may not think so, but he found a treasure that was infinitely more valuable than the Schmitz, the Word of God. (laughs) And Paul said of Timothy, he says, you have a genuine faith. Those are the words he used. The same faith that he said it was found in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And how was that? He said, well, from a youth, you did what? family. How are they searching for? You learn the scriptures, which is able to make you wise unto salvation. And that's the way it is. Great faith came from the word. I'd like to find a little bit of that treasure and some of that gold. Not really. Because that wisdom that Timothy had, the genuine faith that he had, is worth more than all the gold there is in Fort Knox. And I don't know how much is even still there. I guess there's still some. What is the great importance of having the wisdom of God? It's verse 11. Skip down to verse 11. He says, discretion. It'll preserve you. That's the great importance. And understanding will keep you. 
You'll be given discretion or discernment, the ability to know the best course of action to take in any given situation. That's what you'll get when you get this wisdom. It'll enable you to make the right choices and keep you from blunders and their consequences. The New Living Testament translates discernment as wise planning, or I heard it said, spiritual good taste. Wise planning, and I'll explain what I mean by spiritual good taste here in a minute, but it does say in verse 10, knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. So y'all have probably seen that show HGTV. I guess it's gone off the air now. Well, they're showing reruns, but it's no longer current. Chip and Joanna Gaines, fixer upper. They can take a house that looks like nothing and make it really nice. And why can they do that? Because they have, well, it's the wife. She has good taste. I'm only saying that because all of you have seen what they've done on that, probably most of you anyways. In my opinion, Daryl does the same thing. I worked with Daryl for years as a decorator. And he could just put things together in a way, unlike a lot of decorators that I work for, or some of them I'd be like, man, oh man. But I always would look on his jobs, and I'm not just saying this to flatter him, it was really the way I felt, that man, everything just flows great, pleasant to the eye, and it all involves wise planning. I had Daryl do my own house, by the way. I liked it. Because I've done work for people that do their own decorating. And you walk into a room, they've got expensive, beautiful furniture. They've got these magnificent drapes, but none of the colors and none of the styles go together. It's all mismatched. And my only thought is, I don't say it out loud, but I'm thinking, you have no taste. You have no discernment. You have no ability to put things together. And that's what this wisdom is. It knows how to take truth. That's what he's talking about here. When wisdom, verse 10, enters your heart, and knowledge is pleasant to your soul, in verse 11, then discretion will preserve you. Discretion, discernment, this ability to take all of this truth through the Bible and put it into a way that works, that makes things work. Putting it all together, how to discern and apply the whole Word of God. And that brings me to the second point, which is the great benefits of finding wisdom. When you get this discerning wisdom, that's talked about there in verse 11, discretion, it will preserve you. It says an understanding will keep you. That's what it'll do. Preserve you and keep you. Don't we want to have that happen? Because not everyone's preserved and not everybody is kept. The other two things it'll do, it'll deliver you. And this is what he talks about in the verses 12 down to verse 19, it'll deliver you from two major temptations. And look in verse 12. So it'll preserve you, it will keep you, and in verse 12 it says it will deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things. And that's the key to how the evil man operates. It's right there in verse 12. And they are men of perverted speech. Now, when I hear that perverted speech, I usually you're going to think of somebody that's vulgar, tells dirty jokes, got a crude speech. But perverted means twisted. It means seductive. It is talking about speech that is intended to lure you from the paths of uprightness. That's what it says. Look what he says in verse 13. He speaks perverse things, verse 12, but from those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. Verse 15, whose ways are crooked or twisted and who are 
devious in their past. That's what that speech is going to do to you, seductive speech. Lure you away. It's not necessarily this crude, abrasive speech that would turn you off right away. It's generally the cool people. And he's talking to young people. And they may can speak really nice. They can even use Christian words. They can talk of love. But the intent of the speech is to get you off the straight and narrow. That's what it's saying. Verse 15, that speech is going to take you with them whose ways are crooked and who are devious in their past. So they present things in a way they really aren't. They're twisting truth, twist reality to make it seem like what it really isn't. And it can be Christians, professing Christians and non-Christians that do this. It's just that little bit of compromise, right? That little bending of the rules. It doesn't seem like much, but you know in your heart that you're straying from clear truth. And once you get off the path just a little, that little deviation becomes ever widening as time goes on. I don't know if you all remember this, but years back, Henry Blackaby one time, he's saying this is the straight and narrow path Jesus has taken us on. And what happens is you start to deviate a little bit. Well, you're still not too far from the path. You could even still see the path. But the more time goes on and that deviation takes place, you're clear out here. And that's what happens. Because when your heart is no longer intent on walking the narrow way, you're over here on the Broadway. And the longer you're on the Broadway, the further you are away from the narrow way, right? I, mean, I thought that was a good point when he made that one time. Bad men use good words many times to deceive the simple. What this is telling us here, and this is how critical it is, when wisdom has entered your heart, as it says in verse 10, then when perverse men, twisted men, men that are trying to twist the truth, in any form they come. They can come, and I'm saying they could come in a lot of different forms. Religious and non-religious. In any form they come. And when they try to seduce you, if you've been applying this wisdom and it comes into your heart and it's part of you, the things they say, they may initially sound good, logical, wise, whatever it is, but it's not going to pass the whiff test, if you know what I'm saying, because truth is going to be guiding what's coming in your hearing. And you're like, well, that may sound good and that may take the simple off that road, but that's why we have to have our senses exercised to do what? To discern good and evil. And the only way that's going to happen is if you're on the bike of wisdom and riding it. You're not on that bike of wisdom just reading. It's not going to work for you, is it? I mean, that's how wisdom comes, by applying and being committed to it. The second one we have here, the second temptation, is from this immoral woman in verse 16. It says, wisdom will do what? It will deliver you from the perverse man, taking you off the path, taking you down devious paths. In verse 16, it says, wisdom will deliver you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who, it's words again, flatters with her words, with her speech. That's the one thing both these temptations have in common is speech. She flatters with her words and What's the kind of flattering words, I mean, amongst the many that she uses? She's an adulteress, a seductress. You get cozy with her or whatever, just talking, nothing's happening. My husband doesn't even seem to notice me. He's so busy with work and ball games. But you, you make me feel important. And 
you're handsome. Oh. Now, if a woman said that to me, I'd be like, you're a liar. <laughs> That'd be an easy one to overcome, right? But some of the young guys, younger guys, that's the way that stuff works. And that's what she's doing. Because those words come from a heart that is described. That's exactly what it's saying there in verse 17. It comes from somebody who forsakes the companion of her youth. Talking about her husband. She's forsaken him in her heart. And she forgets the covenant of her God. The covenant she made before the Lord doesn't mean anything. And she's left her husband in her heart. And she's the one that's out to seduce you. She's wanting to find somebody else. And don't say it doesn't happen. It happens all the time. It's happened in here more than once. So we can't say, oh, what are you talking about? That's the world out there. No, it's everywhere, isn't it? And that's why this is all written. That's the heart that's described there. But he says, if wisdom is in your heart and you're ever in that situation, you know what wisdom will tell you to do? It's pretty simple. It's a three-letter word. That ever happens to you? Run. Run as fast as you can. Isn't that what Joseph did? That's what Joseph did. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6 that we are to talk to somebody about why we shouldn't commit fornication when they're trying. He says, flee fornication. And he told Timothy that you should flee youthful lust because that's when the temptation is going to be the strongest. He says, don't hang around and play with it. Don't be looking at that internet stuff. He says, flee youthful lust. Get far away from it. And you're saying, well, that's not very deep. Run, a three-letter word. No one said wisdom has to be complicated. Does it have to be complicated to be wisdom? So I don't see Jesus prescribing a lot of counseling to overcome lust. I don't. He merely said this. He says, I say unto you that whosoever looks at a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her where? In his heart, he says, if your right eye, here's his solution. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, that's wisdom. And that's wisdom that came from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. All I did was read what he said. How to deal with lust. Because what's he telling us there? He says the same thing with anger. It's, it's a matter of what? It's the matter of the heart. It's a matter of the set of the sail. What you determine ahead of time that you're going to do in your heart, that's what you'll do. If you haven't said, I've made a covenant with my eyes, I'm not going to behold a woman, a maiden, whatever, then guess what you'll do? You'll do it. Isn't that what he's saying? I'm not trying to make it any harder than it is, but that's where it is. And you've got to burn that Bridge is what he means by plucking your eye out, because once your eye's gone or both of them, guess what you're not going to be doing with them anymore? So isn't that what he's telling you? And that takes away the option of lust, doesn't it? But the problem we know, we've heard this before, it's not so much your eyes as it is your heart. Solomon's telling us here, here's what he does. Like I said, he paints a pretty vivid picture. If you follow the path of the seductress, it will lead you just where Jesus said, and that is death. Look what it says in verses 17 to 19. It says, she forsakes the companion of her youth, forgets the covenant of her God for her house. This isn't just a path. This is a house she's leading you into, a room. But it leads where? Down to death. Her paths to the dead. None who go to her return, nor do they regain the paths of life. So let me ask you, what if 
Joseph, what if he'd have given in to Potiphar's wife? What if he'd have given in? Does that mean he'd have perished? I'm not saying because somebody's lusted once or committed adultery or fornication, that's the unpardonable or unforgivable sin. But what we need to remember is, once you're heading this way, guess what? To get back over here, you have to do what? Repent. You got to turn. You can't keep going that other way. Isn't that what it says? And do we all understand here that repentance isn't something where you just wake up one day and decide, oh, I've been an idiot. No, it doesn't work like that. I used to think it did. But repentance is a gift. And who has to give us that gift? God. And he's generous and he's very forgiving. But don't mess with him. Don't play with him. Don't presume upon his grace because it just may not be there because some do come back. And a lot don't. That's just the way it is. So yeah, he's forgiving, but true repentance is a gift that comes. Because we can talk about Joseph and, hey, Joseph stayed true, didn't he? And God blessed him. Isn't that what, don't you want to stay on that path? Because what about Samson? We're talking about wisdom, listening to your father and your mother. Samson wouldn't listen to his father and his mother. They tried to tell him, why do you have to go after those Philistine girls? You're not supposed to do that. It's not right. You're a man of God. He wouldn't listen to him, would he? He's going to go on his way, do what he wants to do. He gets seduced by Delilah. And it says her, her house and her path lead you to the dead and to death. And where was his end? What was Samson's end? Did he live to be an old man? Was he like Moses where his eyes were not dim, 120 years old? He didn't have any eyes when it was all over. And he ended up beneath a pile of rubble with the Philistine lords. Now, I think Samson made it in, but that's some pretty severe chastisement, wouldn't you say? Well, I don't think I'd wish that on anybody. That's the way it is. Now, I think Solomon here in these verses, is, his main point is about sexual sin. But it also would apply to spiritual adultery, I believe. You could make the application there because many times the prophets would call Israel spiritual adulterers that had been seduced by false gods and false cultures that were around them. And what did they do? They departed from the living God and his truth. We have that today. We've always had it around. And that's why Jesus says, beware of false teachers, false prophets. Because they're going to do what? They're going to try to seduce you. There are seducing spirits that work through them. And the only way you're going to be kept from that is to pay attention and to have a heart where I am committed to walking in truth no matter what the cost. That's the only protection that we really have, isn't it? So in conclusion, you know, what we are presented with, we talked about this last week, there are two paths and only two paths and both those paths have an end. And that's what we have here in these closing verses of chapter 2. In verse 13, it says, they leave the paths of uprightness to walk. Their paths are what? It says darkness in verse 13. Crooked. Their ways are crooked. The way they walk is crooked and devious in verse 15. And in verse 18, it says their paths lead down to death. And the end of the wicked isn't good because look what it says at the end of chapter 2. It says the wicked will be cut off from the earth. That's the ultimate end. And the unfaithful will be uprooted from it. That's not a blessing. And Jesus says wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads somewhere. Where does it lead? That's where this path led these people to. 
We just don't want to be in that category. But the father is making this promise to the son, isn't he? That if he's saying, if you'll make the right choice, son, and walk on the path of wisdom, you are going to walk on that path and you're going to have some good companions to walk with you. So look what it says in verse 20. It says, you may walk in the way, the path of good men and keep to the paths of the righteous for the upright will dwell in the land and the blameless will remain in it. His companions are going to be the good, the righteous, the upright, and the blameless. Not the good, the bad, and the ugly, but the good, the righteous, the upright, and the blameless. And I'd feel pretty safe walking with those guys, with those characters, wouldn't you? That crowd, I'd be honored to walk with them anywhere. And glad I was. Versus the other, right? They have a permanent The wicked don't have anything. The earth is taken from them. They're uprooted from it. But the righteous have a permanent dwelling place. Verse 21. They will dwell in the land. And the blameless, they'll remain in it. Dwelling with the Lord for all eternity is really what it's talking about. And so when does that start? When does that dwelling with the Lord start? It starts now, doesn't it? In the land is code, so to speak, for in Christ, in union with Christ. And that's where we want to be, in union with Him. Because once you're in union with Him... You're set in union with the rock of ages. Amen? That's what we're being presented with. Let me ask, what is our greatest need now? It's not jobs. It's not peace with Iran. It's not a new car, house, or a college degree. You might think those are your greatest needs. It is not. It is wisdom of God, the treasure that gives us the knowledge of God and his ways. And how bad do we need it? Well, I know how bad we should need it. It should be verse 3 for us. We should be crying out for discernment and lifting up our voices for understanding. Because when we do that, he's saying, if you will do that, then we will receive the wisdom that comes as a result. And that'll put us in a place of blessing and protection. And when do you need protection? If a tsunami was coming, you would really wish you were under some protection, wouldn't you? Somewhere safe and dry and that water couldn't come. Well, didn't we talk last week? A tsunami is already here, crashing down on us. Of all times, we need the wisdom of God, don't we? Amen. And that's the word for tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word once again. I ask you all. Open all of our eyes and hearts, Lord, to really see what you're saying here through Solomon in this chapter 2 of Proverbs, Lord, that we need to see the grave importance of having your wisdom to keep us from temptation of all kinds, to keep us on the right paths, to keep us on the just, right, fair, equitable paths that lead to life. It'll keep us... So when we can discern when someone is trying to take us off those paths, Lord, I ask you'll give us hearts to listen, to hear, to treasure, and most of all, Lord, to apply the truth that you've given us, that we will buy the truth and sell it not. And I just ask that that's what you'll put in all of our hearts here in Jesus' name. Amen.